Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Mafedon. Thanks for tuning in. The Taiwanese community of Boston brought their culture to life on Saturday as they celebrated Taiwan's independence. In downtown Boston, red dominated the streets at the Taiwanese culture celebration to mark the 111th National Day of the Republic of China, also known as Taiwan. It's important for the world, especially the people here in New England, to know that we're here and we're standing strong against China's coercion. Commemoration of the heritage came in many forms, from traditional dancing to lively music to big smiles and colorful banners. The Taiwanese have been part of Boston since the end of the Vietnam War in the mid-70s, when many Asian migrants moved to the U.S. to start anew. We're here to celebrate the enormous contributions of the Chinese and the Taiwanese community, helping build this strong city in our country, celebrating our immigrant roots and making sure Boston's a welcoming city to all. The Taiwanese culture is one of the many cultures enriching the city's large mixing pot, and we wouldn't have it any other way. Over in Somerville, Boston activists and musicians from near and far flooded the streets to bring light to their causes at this year's Honk Festival. A grassroots explosion of brass bands and activism took over Somerville streets at Sunday's Honk Festival. In its 17th year, the three-day festival gathered over 20 bands from across the U.S. and abroad to reclaim public space as they engaged and thrilled audiences along Mass Ave. The bold sounds and bright atmosphere provided the backdrop for local organizations and activists to share their causes, which included protecting the environment, abortion rights, and divestment. Affordable housing was a pressing issue voiced by several Boston groups present. Although rent control is an uphill battle, punk participants say it's one worth fighting for. The housing crisis is unbelievable right now. It's extremely expensive. It's not affordable. We have many people uh, in our city, in our state, being evicted or having to move to other places or live in one bedroom because they cannot afford rent anymore. Uh, we need to do something. The state needs to do something. The government needs to do something. Not only funding, talking about Section 8 and subsidized houses is not enough. We need rent control. Why rent control? Because we cannot afford any longer the rents. Uh, landlords uh, and properties, they don't have a, a cap where to raise the rent as much as they want. And today it's impossible for the working class people living in the city of Boston. Rents are skyrocketing all over Boston and all over the state, frankly. And people are being priced out of their homes, being taken out of their communities, being displaced. And this is, a, uh, this is so violent. And these families have nowhere else to go because you're supposed to be safe inside your home. And now the corporations are pricing people out for greed and for profit. After much anticipation, the restoration of Huntington Theater is ready just in time for opening night. After a few final touches, phase one of Huntington Theater's renovation is done. Theater lovers and Huntington staff gathered for Monday's ribbon cutting as doors opened for the first time since the pandemic. 
And during that time, the theater has undergone a transformation with brand new seating designed for modern comfort, improved sight lines, and upgraded systems. Since 1982, Huntington Theater has enriched Boston's art community, producing over 200 plays. As staff get ready for opening night of Joe Turner's Come and Gone, it's clear the pandemic's hold on Boston's theater scene is coming to an end. The future, like the lights, is bright. Because at the end of the day, people are going to come to this building because it's a place where art gets made and art gets shared. We have built a place of congregation where people come together to have that collective experience that Loretta was describing, to share space, to actually whatever else is going on in the world, to actually try to breathe the same air um, as their fellow audience members and the living artists whose acts of deep personal and emotional generosity, who give of themselves in real time at every performance, enhance all of our lives. And in terms of the Huntington's place in the community, it's one of the foremost arts organizations in all of Boston. And, and therefore hold, holds a really important place in the, in the culture of the city. Um, and as we all learned during COVID, without the arts, we would be nowhere. Why is this important? Because Boston has a reputation for having a broad base in terms of literature, in terms of arts, in terms of sports. It's part of being a city, having a full portfolio. This is an essential part of Boston's improvement and this, you can see it at the MFA, you can see it here. The arts in Boston are together, and that's the way they should be. October's Latinx Heritage Month was enjoyed in style at the Age Strong Celebration in Roxbury on Tuesday. In Boston, seniors from the Age Strong Latinx Heritage Month celebration danced to vibrant music and let their voices be heard. These seniors have laid deep roots in Boston and they're proud of their culture. In between dancing and laughing, community members reconnected in the Reggie Lewis Center where their voices were uplifted and culture celebrated. The story of Latinx heritage lives in rich music, traditions, and foods, and it's a joy they want to share with others. I am particularly excited and proud of the Hispanic Heritage Month celebration because it's an opportunity for us to teach other people about our culture, but more importantly to demand respect for our communities, but also to teach our youth how to be proud of our own roots. We're here today celebrating Hispanic heritage. It's so important that we can honor everybody's culture. You know, that's what makes our city so wonderful is people coming here from all different places, bringing their history, their traditions, their culture. And today we really get to honor and lift up um, Hispanic older adults in the city of Boston and thank them for what they do to make our, our city just as, as beautiful and as vibrant as it is. I'm incredibly proud of being a Latina and in this uh, Latinx or Hispanic Heritage Month, depending on what you call it, um, I urge you to continue to celebrate and create safe spaces of joy for all of our communities to be able to not only celebrate who we are and be proud of who we are, 
but also to recognize that we deserve to be celebrated and welcomed beyond just one month every year. Next on BNN News Interviews, choreographer Rachel Linsky has created Zahor, a dynamic series of telling Holocaust survivor stories through dance. In her newest work, Hidden, she portrays the life story of Aaron Elster, who at 10 years old escaped the liquidation of his Jewish ghetto by Nazis. Aaron was hidden in the attic of a Polish family for two years, but lived on to tell his tale of courage and survival. Here's the interview with Rachel Linsky and Aaron's son, Steve Elster. I grew up in what I consider to be a Jewish bubble of Boston. And uh, when I went off to college in North Carolina, I was one of the first Jewish people that some of my new friends had ever met. It was quite a shift or a culture shock. Um, and I created, Zahor started with just one piece that I created for part of Yom HaShoah programming at Elon University, which is Yom HaShoah on the Hebrew calendar is Holocaust Remembrance Day. And the programming was small programming run by the Hillel, typically just Jewish students would attend, um, maybe some students who were trying to get cultural credit requirements for different academic courses. Um, and I created a short dance piece set to the poem of Holocaust survivor Alexander Kimmel. Mm. I choreographed it on three friends of mine in the dance program who are not Jewish and found that many of my non-Jewish peers in the dance program, friends and professors came to this Yom HaShoah programming to see the work, to see the project they knew we had been working on. Um, I found it, it was a really beautiful way to bring non-Jewish people into that type of event. And I've always found that Holocaust education is heavily concentrated in the Jewish community. But I believe that it's really important that we study one another's histories. You know, we can't just remain in our own community bubbles, studying only our own histories. If we actually want to work towards that goal, never again of preventing history from repeating itself, we need to study one another's histories. We need to understand them. We need to be able to empathize in order to stand up for one another. Um, and I found that even just with this first initial piece was a really beautiful way to start to bridge between my Jewish community and my dance community to begin to open up some of those conversations. Um, and I decided from there that it was something I would continue to work on and continue to make new works to preserve different survivor testimonies and to create this dance, performing arts as a more inviting lens to take Holocaust education outside of just the Jewish community. And why is it so important to share these stories right now? We're in a really pivotal time in history right now where there are very few survivors still living to tell their stories firsthand. And, you know, in a matter of years, We'll hold, that we'll hold that responsibility entirely ourselves. And I feel that it's really important if we don't learn and gather what we can now, we run a huge risk that those memories and testimonies and stories will fade. And then we'll just keep 
repeating history over will remain in that loop of hatred and genocide. But I do really believe if we can effectively learn from history, learn from the stories and the messages that survivors have left us, I believe that we do stand a chance at breaking that loop. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm in almost a very unique position as well. Um, you know, my parents' generation, they didn't often get to hear these stories. Shortly after the Holocaust, survivors weren't ready to tell their stories. Um, but I grew up hearing firsthand from many survivors. Um, so as someone who has been able to hear these stories and learn from them, I feel especially responsible to be part of actively keeping them alive and trying to do whatever we can to see if we can break that cycle, that loop. And Hidden is the latest piece of the Zahor series that's debuting next Thursday at the Boston Center of the Arts. Uh, it is actually based on the story of Aaron Elsler. Uh, Steve, who is your father, uh, and can you take us through a little bit of the collaborative process of creating the choreography based on Aaron's story um, with the dancers and also told through his son, Steve? I wanted to bring my dancers, their different perspectives and their voices into why it's important to keep these stories alive, to study these stories, what resonates with them about these stories. Every dancer who has been part of this work from our initial research stages to the film project we created, this live performance, as well as I have a cohort of teens who have participated in workshops and will be performing in um, the show next weekend of Hidden. Hmm. Each dancer who has been part of it has read Aaron's memoir and they have picked memories that most stick and resonate with them and have begun to create movements and gestures inspired by those memories. And then as a group, we've worked to further develop them to add layers of analysis, sort of like a physical conversation to build the work. So the dancers' voices are all very heavily present in this collaborative work. And then Stephen has played a really important role in this work, talking to all of the dancers who have been involved, including the team participants. And he's been able to share with us, beyond just shaping the choreography and the narrative in itself, but truly the experience of the dancers. It's so important in doing this work as you know, fleeting as it can feel in that pivotal time to remain as close to the source as possible. And Steve, I would love to bring you into the conversation. Uh, something I was very struck by as I listened to your father's interviews and, and read um, interviews on him was he talked about the desperate need to survive as he went through the harrowing experience of growing up, um, being in the Jewish ghetto. Um, how has your father's story of survival shaped the person that you are today? And how would you describe your father's legacy? I can only speak for myself, uh, but has uh, have shaped us as individuals. Having uh, dad involved early on was insightful. There were things that he would bring to the table, if you would, uh, his personality, his 
his want to survive. He used to always say, an Elster will survive. And that stuck with me for, for many years and is still with me. Uh, that was something that he said to us, which was more of a character. It was more of a, in our minds, a hereditary type of trait. We will survive. We will get through all challenges that are put towards us, put in front of us. And quite frankly, we believed it. And uh, that was a big part of the early childhood uh, phrases and uh, messages to my brother and I. In our later adulthood, when we came to understand his story, understand the details, which we didn't know until we were much later in our, in our lives, about 18 to 21 years old, mm. we started understanding a little bit more about that, the grit, the personality, the perseverance. And we were fortunate to have a mother and father who loved us, nurtured us, and uh, disciplined us and gave us these messages. And they were ingrained in us. We had a good childhood uh, and our adult life, especially for myself, being very involved in helping dad write his book. <laughs> he would read me a paragraph of what he wanted to say. And then we would go into 30 minutes of detail mm -hmm. of what it really meant to him. And so I really understood and learned how difficult it was for him at a young age to survive. And if he could do it, we knew others could as well. So impactful. And what do you hope that audience take away from the performances of Hidden next week? What I'd like to see or what I'm hoping for is the audience understands the messages and the challenges that any survivor, whether it be the Holocaust, whether it be surviving this day and age, can understand and relate to. Because dad was all about connecting to young adults it didn't have to be about his story. It had to be about his message, being an upstander, being stronger than many give you credit for. And those were two very important messages in the later years of his presentations, his talks. In the beginning, all survivors would always use the phrase, never again. Mm. And that was something that they felt very strong about. They never wanted to see something like this again. That phrase has kind of diminished a little bit. And many survivors do talk about being an upstander, standing up to bullets, knowing in your heart and in your soul that you are stronger than you even give yourself credit for, depending on the situation, depending on the circumstances that you are in. So I'm hoping that the audience members get a piece of that from this performance. 
Hit and runs at the Boston Center for the Arts from Thursday, October 20th through Saturday, October 22nd. 7 p.m. Thursday and Friday and 6 p.m. on Sunday. Tickets are available at bostontheaterscene.com forward slash season forward slash hidden. And finally, Serena Zhang serves as the director at Palace Gallery and the coordinator of its newest exhibit, Nyangben, The Lost Art of Tonka. For the first time in the United States, master artist Nyangben is bringing the ancient art form of Tonka to Palace Gallery. Enjoy the interview. So Tonka painting is a thousand, thousands of years old uh, art form. Tonka painting could be anything. It doesn't have to be a Buddhist deity, but it oftentimes is because traditionally that's what it was done in monasteries. Um, so it usually is paintings using all mineral natural materials on either cotton or silk cloth. Mm. And it depicts um, anything that has to do with the story of Buddhism, the deities, um, and it's kind of like, you know, Renaissance painting in a way where it wants to tell the story of, of a certain practice or a certain religion. Um, so that's the story it depicts, and that's mostly what Tonka is about. However, uh, in Nyambin's work, you see more than that, where he branches out and he paints, you know, landscapes and also elephants and animals. Mm -hmm. um, and that is something that's not traditionally done and very new. So his Tonka is extremely contemporary compared to some of his predecessors. Wow. And where does he draw his, his inspiration from? What is his creative process? So Nyambin started to draw Tonka at a very, very early age. As you can see, reflected in his work is extremely detailed. Not everyone can just learn this, you know, a few years. Mm -hmm. So he started off in a monastery in Qinghai, China where he was a monk for a very long time and just studied under this master in this monastery, drawing every single day and learning the skill little by little wow. since he was a, a very young child. Um, and he did study under one of the most like prolific Tonka masters. Um, and all he did all day, every day was draw Tonka to the point where he doesn't know how to read or write or have any other skills. That's how dedicated he is to wow. this craft. Hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. And how you said that you talked about him being a contemporary artist. How has he innovated the Tonka style? Yeah. So he innovated the Tonka style in a lot of ways, um, mostly with coloring, because it does take natural minerals. All, all you know, all Tonka uses just natural minerals. Um, mm -hmm. That's why it lasts such a long time. If you go to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, they do have ancient Tonka that's thousands of years old, and you can still see coloring. You can still see the composition coloring, and it has not faded that much. Well, as if you see something in acrylic, it, it doesn't really last thousands of years, mm -hmm. and that's due to the natural materials. So when the world started opening up, and he, he's not confined to just regional, you know, he's traveled to Tibet, he's traveled to other places, he started you know, getting his hands on other semi-precious stones, other, you know, minerals uh, and materials, and he started playing with those. So his coloring is extremely vibrant compared to some of these ancient Tonkas. So mm -hmm. you see like bright blue that has never been used in history before, um, some red tints that has never been used in history before, because usually it's just kind of like a a variation of gold and black and kind of muted colors. Mm -hmm. So the coloring is something that's extremely special. Um, he also has pioneered a technique 
for 3D Tonka. So if you see oh. in some of his pieces with a magnifying glass, you see it come out of the painting uh, in a 3D manner. And if you take the frame off and you run your fingers on it, you can actually feel texture. And mm. that's not done in 3D printing. That's not done in, in any special way other than just him hand painting it and kind of mastering this technique that he invented. So it, in, in that is very, very unique. And you won't see that in any other Tonka practices or Tonka artists, unless it's one of his students that he taught this skill to. Hmm. It's so funny that you say that because I remember being there and I saw the magnifying glass. I had a chance to take it up, but I had to stop myself from from touching it because you could um, it was so tactile. It was so palpable. And um, I love when you can see the the impression of the work of the brushes and even the gold leaf, how it was popping up was incredible. So. Um, so you talked about um, the gallery. It, it features local artists. It also mm -hmm. uh, shows international artists as well. Why was it important to have Nyan Ben's work in Pellis Gallery? Because like the name of the show, the reason why the owner of the gallery, Alfredo Pellis, decided to name the show The Lost Art of Tonka is because it is a lost art form. This art form is not produced typically anywhere in the world uh, except for the Tibetan region, some of Bhutan, some of India, uh, just because, you know, the, the Buddhist community is extremely you know, dense there. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that anyone around the world can do because like I, like I said, Nyambin spent his whole entire life mastering this skill. And for Tonka masters who are not Nyambin, they do the same thing. So think about how much of a discipline you have to have where your whole entire life is dedicated to this craft. Um, you know, it's like anything. It's kind of like imagine dedicating your whole entire life to uh, building a chair or, or, or you know, anything. Right. Yeah. And that takes extreme discipline. And that's something that most people, even if they're talented and have the skill set to have, not every person would have the mental, you know, strength to be able to do that. Right. You know, I can't even go to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's very special. Yeah. Definitely takes a deep dedication, a deep love, and almost a meditation, it feels like, to, yes. to do this work. Yes. Uh, how do you feel the Boston community uh, can benefit from learning about his work and the Tonka art style? So this is something that Tonka is something that you don't see ever in the public where it's for sale. Mm. Um, it's mostly just in museums and in museums, it's very like dense, you know, you go in there, you kind of read the descriptions. It's very confusing. We brought it to an atmosphere in an art gallery where you can interact with, you know, the artists, you can interact with, you know, myself or the owners or someone who works there and have like an in-depth tour that's more, uh, relatable to the community and they can ask any questions they want. Um, at our opening, you know, he was at the gallery for a few days and answered any and all questions that the community may have. Wow. Think about when you can ever get access to a Tonka artist. You, you, you don't really typically get that even at major museums in the West. So that was extremely special. And we think that, you know, bringing this kind of historical, monumental historical art is very important because there needs to be education because if there's not, then it's going to be a lost art form. Mm. And what are your hopes for Nyan Ben's legacy? 
So right now, it's just important for Tonka in general to be kind of known in the West and for you know Western Western society and countries that don't really know about this art form to learn about it. That's mm-hmm. first and foremost the importance of why we have them here in the United States. Um, Nyambin is also the cultural ambassador for anything that has to do with Tonka and Tibetan art. So he is the the person, the point person to go to um, when world leaders have some some questions about Tonka art or the culture related to Tonka art. He's the first person to go to in China. You know, he's shown in um, like uh, countless embassies, Chinese embassies around the world. He is personally collected by hmm. the president of China, Xi Jinping, and world like and. Um, and given to the, his art form is given to a lot of world leaders as a form of like education and to show this craftsmanship that many people don't really know about. Hmm, that's beautiful. And for our viewers who want to see the work up close and personal, uh, where can they do so and how long can they do it for? So the exhibition will be up at Palace Gallery. We're located on Newbury Street, uh, 114 to be exact, and it will be up until November 26th. Our information, contact information is on our website. You can email us, you can call us, uh, and we'll be happy to schedule even a, a personal tour if that's something that you're more interested in from Tuesday to Saturday from 11 to 630. All right. Fabulous. Serena Zhang, director at Palace Gallery. Thank you so much for being in the studio and telling us about this incredible exhibit. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amaphidon. I'll see you next Friday.